I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sharp Attack, which has a series name now because we've done so many of these and they're brilliant and you love them, so we just keep going. Well, Jason keeps going because he's like the little engine that could. Jason Salki, how are you? I'm very, very well. All good here. Which to see you are we doing today? Right, so we're going to be doing Sharp's Battle. Mm-hmm. Sharp's Battle is interesting because it's the first novel that was tackled before the novel came out. So Zach is very excited about this concept. Yeah, so when, when we read, and we're obviously going to get into this, when we read that there was the death of Perkins, and I said, we'll get into this later, we thought, oh, well, well Bernard's written the death of Perkins because he wrote the death of Cooper, the death of Tongue, that's cool. But later on, we found out it was different when the, when the novel came out. Anyway, we'll get into that later on when we talk about the death of Perkins, possibly the most emotive scene ever on Sharp. We'll do. Lyndon's crying already, even though he doesn't remember any of it, aren't you, Lyndon? <laughs> yeah. It's a running joke that you don't even remember being in Sharp, really, do you? No, but we are going to have a good old chat about that later and about the fact that you were undignifiedly killed off. And uh, is that even a word? Never mind. Uh, that you were killed off and we saw you no more and your little baby face was gone, which was tragic. Hugh Ross has rejoined us, of course. Hugh Ross, Mongo Monroe. Hello, Hugh. Hello. Good morning. And we also have with us, I just, I'm so excited. Ian McNeese has been in, basically, I've been looking at your face my entire life, Ian. <laughs> it's so much and of course you were in sharp as well um and you were wagon master general runciman indeed i couldn't remember his rank uh just well... general is cool just general <laughs> no always wagon master general that's <laughs> what he wanted <laughs> how are you very very well I actually, do you know what? Just before we start, um, you and Hugh have just been regaling us with, uh, let, let's give this some airtime because this is horrific. Um, the government are trying to basically uh, marginalise all actors over 70. You're not allowed to work anymore. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes, I, um, I was up for a role in a series called Queens of Mystery, which is an Acorn TV show. And uh, I suddenly got a, 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 um, a message from a writer who'd written this role for me, which was lovely. And then he wrote back and said, I'm terribly sorry, but the Bruce's have told me that the government who are funding the insurance to try and get productions back in February are saying that uh, uh, their insurance will not cover anybody 70 or older. So that was a real blow. And I think Hugh has also uh, had this problem, and Oliver Cotton. So the three of us here today, who are of a certain age and all, you know, in desperate need of uh, of help to get us back, uh, you know, in the saddle. 
Um, and Hugh, is it right that um, their answer is they'll just have people with prosthetics to make people look older than 70? Well, c- certainly on this one commercial uh, breakdown attempt that my agent sent me, it said that uh, if uh, if they couldn't find anybody, uh, they would have a pr- they, they would get somebody younger and they would have a prosthetics expert on hand to deal with the problem. Didn't say prostate, did they? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm quite outraged actually i think anybody over the age of 70 has uh earned the right to make their own decisions on whether they want to work or not and um, so there is a petition isn't there and we would encourage all of our listeners to go and sign it uh we will put it out hugh, hugh sending me a link aren't you and we yeah, will do yes it's going to be interesting because i've got i mean i've been doing this series for years now called uh, doc martin and we are we're due to do our 10th and final series. It was going to be in April of uh, 21, but they've uh, possibly pushed it back now to April 22. And both myself and Irene Atkins are of a certain age. And it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, you know, I mean, if they're going to make Doc Martin without both of us. I mean, yes. that, that's, you know, I mean, what's going to happen there? It's going to be interesting to see. But yeah. it's totally deprive us of so much brilliant talent. It's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, we'll get a petition going. Absolutely, um, that 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 phrase will just get somebody else. That reminds me of the casting process of when I sign my contract every year for Sharp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to take? No, we're not going to take an offer. Okay, we'll just get someone else. <laughs> we also have with us. We're thrilled today because we have one of the ladies with us. We have the lovely Ali Byrne, as she was when she was in the program. Hello, Ali. Hello. Thanks for How asking. You? And it's Ali Asiri now, isn't it? Yeah, it was soon after I did Sharp. I think a couple of years after, and I, I got married, thus the change of name, and I stopped acting and became a writer. I curate poetry, yeah. so I've made anthologies and apps, and I do live shows, so I'm a poetry champion, I suppose. But I don't write poetry, I write about poetry. Is it the, the newer one, is it the, uh, you're compiling Shakespeare for every day of the year, is that the newest one? Yes, yeah. I've done a poem for every day of the year, a poem for every night of the year, and then the Shakespeare for every day of the year. It came out in last September in the UK, and it comes out in America this Tuesday, the 24th of November. And the audio books are a bit of a coup, aren't they? Because you have some rather fantastic talent reading out the poetry. Yeah, so I read the introductions, Mm. and then way, way better actors than I ever was, <laughs> not that I am anymore, um, read the poem. So on a poem for every day of the year, Helena Bonaparte and Simon Russell Peel read brilliantly, of course. And then on the Shakespeare anthology, lots of people read. Simon Russell Peel reads most, <laughs> but Papa Esiodu, Damien Lewis, Helen McCrory, Jada Nuka, Hattie Morahan. Um, and then and, and I've done live events. And Hugh Ross has read in some of my lives. There's our happy, sharp um, continuity uh, poetry uh, element. Well, it's outstanding. Um, we also have with us Oliver Cotton. Have you, you've heard uh, speak a little bit on the uh, issues of the over 70s insurance just then. Oliver, of course, Brigadier Lou. How are you, Oliver? Fine, thanks. Thank you. We also have our two sharp experts. Well, we said they are sharp experts and they are historians, but they are also massive fanboys. And that's basically why they're here. Uh, so Marcus Cribb, one of the managers at Apsley House, which is, of course, Wellington's home. Hey, Marcus. Hey, how are you doing? 
Uh, good. And Zach. Zach is with us. Zach White, Napoleonic historian, who's really excited because he has just decided like four hours ago that this is his favourite episode ever, haven't you, Zach? I have. Absolutely. <laughs> and actually, in fairness, and this is going to sound like I'm sucking up to the actors massively here. Oh, please do. Go right ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think it's some of the portrayals that really make this episode. There are a few things. Some of it's to do with the, the way that it's shot. Some of it's to do with the sets, which are just incredible for this one. But it's also the way in which some of the, the characters are brought to life by our actors. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about this. Uh, I suppose bit, you're but... talking about Wagon Master General Runciman. <laughs> and the farting, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of fart jokes. Oh, in this my God, yes, please. Jokes. Should we just get this out of the way? Because it was undoubtedly the most asked question. It was sound effects, wasn't it, Ian? You were not required to fart on command. I wasn't, no, but I did make uh, uh, Sean Bean laugh at one point when I tried to do something, yes. Okay, brilliant. That's it. Sorry, now we mentioned that. um, Sean, ultra-confident. It was funny. I watched him. He was really nervous before doing the scenes with Ian. I remember that. Like, he'd never seen that before. So really? it was obvious, yeah, yeah, it was, it was strange. It was funny. He was really like, yeah, just nervous, you know, and never seen that. So Ian, you inspired that. You made sharp quiver. Good God alive. <laughs> but it's a brilliant scene. You going to being sent for a nap. I love that, you know, yeah. I didn't think I would take to you, Sharp. And you say, you better go and take a nap. But I love that scene. Like, the whole night scene is one of the best night action scenes in Sharp of all episodes, I would imagine. Marcus, Zach, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's really up there, and it's quite faithful to the books on that part as well. I think it's about that about that time it starts to diverge. But yeah, I, I guess it's much more complicated to film night action because you've got limited time and lighting and all sorts of special effects. But it's it's really good as a, both a fan and a historian. Really enjoy. May it. I may I tell a little story about Sean Bean that that I remember, uh, uh, which is this: is that um, him being in his room uh, at the at the sanatorium, which had a phone, and his mother calling him, and it went like this, hello, mother, hello, Sean, and then she put the phone by the television that was playing Sheffield United, and for two hours he would listen to the game going on, and at the end of it he took the phone up and he said, thank you, mother, and that was it. That was the conversation with his mother, and that was the game of football. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's that parenting. Yeah, that is that's epic parenting from Mrs. Bean there. Uh, something I think Jason and I would absolutely have no problem getting our mothers to do if we were ever out of the country and Chelsea were playing. Uh, before we start, guys, Marcus usually does a little thing at the beginning for us where he just puts the episode into historical context for us and tells us what actually was going on and why everybody was running around farting and having hijinks and and uh, hanging out with Sean Bean. So, Marcus, what is Sharp's battle about? Sharp's battle. So. Depending on the book and the film, um, it's the battle itself in the book is about Fuentes de Unua, and it just diverges in the film just before that. Uh, what it's about is the basically the relationship with the Spanish and the British Army's kind of uh, relationship, especially Wellington's, about who's going to be the supreme commander of the Spanish Army. And there's a lot of really difficult relationships there. You know, only about six years earlier, the Spanish were fighting us at Trafalgar, so there's really hot um, bed of politics and it throws in uh, to the forefront the Irish and the Irish army uh, basically that composed 
both in the Spanish service and in the British uh, soldiers who make up about a third to a quarter of the British army. And uh, they, again, had rebellions that were really quite recent in um, living memory, especially the people who then left Ireland and settled in France and Spain. So there's a lot of hotbed of politics underneath. And trying to keep that relationship, because if any of them went into open rebellion within the British army, it would just destroy um, both the morale and the effectiveness of the British there. It kind of puts in a fictional um, royal guard, which is something Bernard Cornwall does really well, the, the rail company Islandessa, and uh, he, they had real um, foreign service units that were the royal guards, but uh, they weren't, there wasn't ever an Irish one that he Something Bernard Cornwall does quite well, you know, the breaches into Badderhoff and he puts the light division going in and they didn't quite succeed through their breaches, putting in a fictional one so he can write the history around them without stepping on too many toes, I think. It's quite quite effective method. And uh, yeah, it, the, it does bring in in the books a few other extra elements, like one of Sharp's uh, former friends who was a sergeant who's then commissioned into the Portuguese army, which is quite a nice element that doesn't quite go in. And also... The guerrillas, which is something that Sharp always like kind of parallel to, but doesn't quite tell the full story of all the Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, something that they don't get much mention. The Portuguese, basically normal people who were rising up against the French oppression because it was a horrible, horrible war. And it does mention, you know, the fact that if the French were getting captured, they were being mutilated and tortured to death. And then you've got Brigadier Lou, who's like an anti-guerrilla force. He's in the mountain torturing the Spanish to death. So it, it highlights what is true, is a horrible, horrible war, but it's a really important part. About half the French casualties come from illness and a, and a quarter, more than a quarter, come from the guerrillas. More um, guerrillas cause more casualties than actually the open fighting battles themselves by almost double the number. So you've got this fantastic baddie, you know, an ultimate baddie with scars and a, a milky eye um, fighting uh, the Spanish guerrillas who I think we're meant to love to hate and uh, as, a, as a fan and historian you've got you've got well um, you've got furs and you've got scars and you've got a special company going out fighting the, the good guys and then you add in the thing that Hollywood never talks about logistics wagon master general I mean army logistics never get talked about and you add in that element where we're actually going, well, if we don't get our wagon supplies up, then the battle is not going to take place. So that all kind of comes together. It's quite a nice one from a history point of view, tying it all together. And I don't think you really notice too much that it does diverge from the books because it gives us a nice big last battle, gives us Perkins' very sad demise. Um, mothers never leave you that and it leaves not a dry eye in the house and uh, I don't think with the with the famous sharp budget they would have been able to recreate an 80,000 aside battle uh, which is fought over two days it wouldn't have quite worked so uh, bring all the characters together in a in a town uh, with emotive deaths is, is a nice way to wrap it all up yeah I think well we will get to the whole planning and, and why they would have needed to for budget constraints to divert because I know Zach wants to say some stuff about that later but we have so many questions for our actors today um let's, I'm just going to stick a pin in it Ali because you are one of the rare sharp ladies of course everybody would like to know what is it like being only one of only three women in battle in such a testosterone filled environment <laughs> well quite often in the days when I was acting Thing, that it was the usual thing to be one of only um, a few girls on in any cast 
I'd done lots of Shakespeare. So, you know, again, there was only ever a, a few women in each cast. So I'm not sure that I found it like, particularly remarkable turning up on the sharp set. Everyone was so nice. It was so much fun. And I knew Hugh before. Is that right, Hugh? Had we done yeah. Dr. Faustus before? We had, we had. Yeah, yeah we had. I always forget which way around, yeah. Um, so we'd done Dr. Faustus together, um, the play. Um, no, it was... I mean, the amazing thing about um, acting that maybe not all your listeners sort of know is that age is less important as maybe in other um, worlds of work. You know, you turn up and you are you work really normally with people of all different ages. And it's not a sort of typical hierarchy in that way. That I imagine, you know, most junior lawyers are very young. And then as you get older and older, you're in sort of different sections with people of in a probably similar age group. But the world of acting isn't really like that in terms of sort of gender or age. It's a sort of happy mix. And that's really good fun. And you've learned a lot from each other. And as a young actor, which I was, you know, you get to work with, older actors and how brilliant are all of these actors especially here today and so it was a gift really um and I got really good clothes <laughs> yeah it was fun <laughs> but totally on a dress was really good fun to wear um Richard Phelps would like to know on another tack was it hard oh. to keep a straight face when you were playing such a doe-eyed innocent character um I don't know I mean i in a way, as a young actress, I suppose you're quite often, you know, often that sort of juve lead is quite um, young and innocent. I'm trying to think I'd played Olivia. She was probably, I mean, similarly young, maybe slightly less naive in Twelfth Night. Um, no, I don't think so. I think, I think she was really, really well written, Lady Kylie. And, um, you know, she was so wide, but she had some really fun moments, like, you know, holding a gun and, I don't think, I think she was brilliantly written, nuanced, nuanced, fun, and got to have scenes with all sorts of different people. Yeah, I, I, I loved it. I didn't find, I didn't find it difficult. You know, some parts are difficult. Um, I didn't, I think Lady Kylie was a gift, actually. One of the best lines in the show, um, treat me like the lowest Marseille whore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, Poor Lady Kylie, yeah. Which is a ta tabloid line, but then the scene goes on to be so lovely and touching, and Sean is so delicate and lovely and nice, and yet it's, it's really touching, a touching scene, I must say, yeah. even though it starts out with that line, you know, Marseille Hall. But really, really annoyingly in life, I did not take my clothes off. And so many people, because my nighties sort of went down to about here, so many people watched it and seemed to think that I had, because that was the idea, wasn't it? And then I sort of stopped. Yeah, and he was so gentlemanly in the scene, Sean. And I think that the director might possibly have wanted me to reveal more, but I didn't. But really, really annoyingly in life, I have sort of gone on, and quite often people are like, oh, and when you took your clothes off in sharp? And I've said, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Liz Hurley set the standard. That's one thing um, about those dresses, though, isn't it? You're always on the verge of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, true. true one one yeah. wrong slip or move, and in it's yeah. all out. Um, yeah. A couple of questions. Lots of bon bon yes, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, Matthew Stanton and Cease Limburg as well both said you didn't have a, a book character to go on, but the writing in the script then was enough for you to get your teeth into, because I think people are interested in the fact that you managed to portray her as such a part of the episode and stuff, despite the fact that she's not in the book. Um, I remember doing some research before I went and bought some really, really dense history books on the Peninsula Wars that were really, really hard to read, actually. Um, 
and um, I just went with the writing. Yeah, it was really good. It was really good writing. And I, luckily for the history experts being there, because there, was a, there were advisors there that you could go to and ask for anything you wanted to know about the period. Um, I wish I'd have known more poems then, because they can inform you quite quickly. A much easier read than dense, from the dense history books. Um, in, fact, yeah. in fact, Alex, to that, to, to that point, Alex, um, none of us had the book. So none of us could know what the, what the character was like. Of course, per, you know, Perkins had been invented by Bernard. Even I wasn't invented by Bernard. And, and this is the first appearance of Harris in, uh, in the Sharp books, in Sharp's Battle. Uh, Bernard did write novels later that were set before this novel and included Harris, but this is the first appearance of Harris. So none of us had the book to go by. Um, there was a Lord Kylie though in the book, so at least at least Ali would have had that to latch onto had she had the book. I've got one more for Ali. It's brilliant. Um, it, Mark Peters wants to know how hard did you really slap Donna Juanita because it looked real. <laughs> um. Uh, stage fighting is really good fun. Do you think they're all um, the really fun part of what you get to do or what I got to do when I was an actor? Um, yeah, you don't really hit people. <laughs> My favourite was hair pulling in stage fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it's fun. The look in your face, though, Ali, when you approach her, is just pure hate and menace. It, it, <laughs> it, it just it follows that the blow is going to be proper, you know. Sorry, yeah, Ali, what I was thinking of. <laughs> Channeled a heat, yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> Oliver, uh, Greg also says, second best villain and one of the best episodes. Michael Kirby says, How do you get into character to play somebody like Lou? And did you base him on any historical characters? And Chaz Fino adds, Do you appreciate how much you are both loved and hated for this role, for being an awesome actor, but also playing an utter bastard? <laughs> the hardest thing was the eye, really. Mm. When I when we were in London and uh, they said I had to have one eye, I had to go and um, have this fitted. And I'm very squeamish about, I can't wear lenses very well. So I was very squeamish about this. And then I said to the guy who was fitting the, uh, fitting the eye, um, you better give me two or three because we're going, I'm going to the Crimea. It was 1996 or something. I said, I don't think there are many people in the Crimea who can fit uh, a prosthetic eye. Um, so that was a big fight. But anyway, I got that and then we got down there. And then, I don't know, it was the, the I, I thought, I, I don't know how I got into it. I mean, it's, the guy, the guys, it's sort of, um, I thought he was something like out of a Goya painting. You know what I mean? Like those Goya paintings, sort of horrors of war at the time. And uh, I looked at some of those before, but that doesn't, but it was just uh, the eye, a horse. And what about the accent? Because um, Richard Phillips asked, was that difficult to retain all the way through? I didn't, fi I didn't find it difficult. I mean, I, I just tried my best to, uh, to have that, uh, you know, a French accent. I, th I think the man, the man is a sort of uh, one of those, uh, like something out of the Nazis or something. You know, he was a horrible character, but he believed in what he was doing and he didn't care. What, he didn't care. We had a scene, didn't we, Ali? Didn't we have a... A big, uh, mm. yeah, didn't I go for you? Yeah, yeah. I think so. It's a great bit, Oliver, when um, Ali smashes a bottle over your head. Yes. And you, you do, you sort of shake it off out of your hair and do a sort of half Tommy Cooper, half Funzy. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> <laughs> I was just watching this morning. I was cracking up. It was brilliant. <laughs> it was superb. <laughs> but, but of course, yeah. you, if you had the book, 
you would have known that um, the character of Lou had been captured and kept in a Scottish prisoner of war camp for quite for a while. Right, Marcus and Zach? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's where his hatred comes from. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know that. I didn't he know that. had a Scotch-French accent. I think maybe that's what they're trying to get at. Yeah, I, yes, that's what they're aim, they were aiming for. Yeah. How, how, the Lord! Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you probably, would you have just had to go for a, like an atrocious Mel Gibson-style Scottish accent to say, like to sort of convey that you weren't really Scottish, but bits of it had got into your accent? It would have been awkward, wouldn't it? Depends how long he was in there, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. depends how much, uh, whether, he, uh, whether he talked to the Scots at all. How old he was at the time. I think it was yeah. just this extra backstory too that he hates not only the Spanish but the British too, and neither side are going to surrender between the guerrillas, Sharp, and the French. It was going to be a fight to the death. But he was also he's also an opportunist, wasn't he? Presumably, he liked the thing of having his own uh, militia. There was a big thing about that, like uh, his own command, but also like the opportunity that kind of brings of independence and, and yeah. honor and pride. Uh, that comes with never never backing down, and even though he might be a really stereotypical, over theatrical bad guy, yeah. he's going to do it with a bit of flamboyance, and he's fighting for his own honour. He fights for his own men. He stands up against Sharp for executions, and that's a there's a bit of a grey ground if Sharp should have executed people on the spot as well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's his primary motivation. Yeah, that drives him. He's got to avenge the two dudes who were killed. Sharp would do the same if he'd seen them, maybe, you know, which is a great motivation. It's like an anti-Sharp, isn't it? They're, yeah. They're, they're yeah. two sides, yeah. yeah. Sharp would definitely do the same. Yeah, so it's like it's like the French Sharp with the skin Sharp in the books. He's got a big scar running down his face. And, uh, Has he? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's known to always, like, smile because his, his lip mouth's cut. Yeah. I think Sean Bean just had one from fighting Hugh Fraser in... Um, Patriot Games or something. All right. right. Die, that is. That's on his eye. Do you, um, someone, Robin Morrison has asked, um, he says he thinks it was a shame to kill off your character, Oliver, um, that you could have made a great regular thorn in sharp sides spurred on by your hatred. Was there any ever a consideration to keep the character around for longer? Do we know? I can't answer that. I, I don't know. Um, nobody mentioned it. Um, it was pretty self-contained part in the sense that the story came to was um, had a beginning, a middle, and an end in that episode. Wow. Um, yeah, it would have been great to have been around. So I loved, I loved being in the Crimea. It was very exciting. It's also very exciting being there at that time. That's nothing to do with what we're talking about. But I mean, you know, the, the, it is. the wall had just come down. You know, the, it was uh, Perestroika, and it was, and all that was going on. And uh, being, being, we were living in this KGB sanatorium, if I remember which was a very strange experience in some ways. Can I talk a little bit about that, which is to do with the KGB sanatorium. They had little balconies to it, and Oliver and I used to come out on our balcony in the evenings, he he on his and I on mine, and we would talk to each other in cod Russian accents, as (laughs) Chekhov characters saying, we must work, work, work so much. (laughs) Ilya Karyaski, don't you think? And to this day, we still text each other long, long little moments of of, of the same absolute crap. It's 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 been a joy ever since, quite frankly. 
Don't I, you think Vladia, Vladia, my friend, my hun. <laughs> this Ruka, comes up time Ruka, and time again, Ruka. actually, the camaraderie between you all uh, living in in slightly bizarre circumstances. With no place. water, I believe, during that it was a cholera outbreak. Yes. I, think I, I, think, I think the producer, Bert, had to go with a, a case of, of money and pay off some mafia yes. guy for yes, a yeah. bowser of water, didn't he? Is that right? What what exactly happened there? Well, it's 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 more bizarre and interesting than that, Ian, because um, we 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 were used to water shortages. We were in the middle or towards the end of the longest drought in Crimean in recent history. Anyway, um, so we it, it, up in Simferopol, where we did the first episode, Sharp's Gold. There were several water cutoffs, and we were we were given a, a, a bucket every day to wash, flush the bog, brush our teeth with. And it got ridiculous. So we said, listen, we're not having this anymore. And um, uh, we said, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to put our foot down. We got to Yalta and on the first day there was um, a, a water cutoff. We went on strike. So it kept on going on. Chris even went to the heights of getting a water diviner and to look at the what was behind the sanatorium. Okay. Yes, there were payoffs. Yes, um, he had to drop off some dosh to get them turned on the spigot. Yeah, but there was there was the drought. But yeah, he went as far as prospecting for water behind the sanatorium. <laughs> that's how crazy it got. <laughs> oh my god, that's wonderful. That's wonderful stuff. That's great. Uh, the, the yes, yeah, well, I think they had something more sophisticated. But who knows, man? Crimea was was uh, definitely. Yeah, but that's true, Ian. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. It's all in my book, by the way, From Crimea with Love. Jason, are you writing a book? This is the first I've heard of it. It's funny you should say that. Yes. Um, it's about this show I did. It's, and it's got a subtitle, The Misadventures of an Actor in Sharp. For Ali, uh, Ian and Oliver, uh, Hugh already knows this and Hugh is fantastic at Selkie Bingo, um, as he proved on his last appearance. Mm-hmm. Day, Selkie Bingo is that the listeners drink every time Jason mentions his book, which means <laughs> it's a fun game to mention the book as much as you possibly can. And Hugh was an absolute champion at this last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, because he basically remembered to ask him every five minutes and we think we'll be slaughtered. I, I got one listener uh, tweet me this morning saying he woke up this morning with a raging hangover because he listened to the Eagle one last night. So uh, that's quite a uh, Peter oh, Carter shout out to him because uh, I think fun. if I mention it and get him in the morning. Charles <laughs> Eagle had Michael Cochran in it. So you can imagine that was oh. a laugh. Yeah. Can I just ask actually, Oliver, there was something else for you. And I think the reason these keep coming up, people are obsessive about asking about the experience with horses and things that you had beforehand. And I think it's because Michael Cochran let on that he was terrified of them, hated them and was a complete buffoon being dragged around the set on a horse. So they always now ask the people that had big horsey parts if they were experienced or if uh, it was terrifying. Uh it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't terrifying. I know there was one bit where I had to. I can't remember why, but I was escaping or trying to escape on my horse, and um, the director said to me, "Okay, so you're coming around the corner, and those four stuntmen there, these four <laughs> Russian drunken Russian stuntmen on horses, <laughs> who are like maniacs." Uh, he said, "They're going to come at you. So just you know, can 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 you just? Can't, he didn't say improvise it, but you know, they'll come on the right and the left." And I said, "Yeah, okay." Well, let's just go for it. Let's try. And I came around the corner on my horse, rode up this piazza, whatever it was. It was like a sort of square. And they came at me like, you know, the, the whole First World War, war kind of coming. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I had to stop in the middle and just go to put my head. Stop, 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 stop. stop. Uh, 
And I, I said, could you, t- I didn't speak many Russian then, speak a bit now, but I said, could you tell them that, um, that I've only got one eye in this and I've got no stereo, I've got no stereo, so I can't see what's, what's happening. Uh, and so we had to go, we had to do it again and, and, uh, they were a little bit nicer that time. I think, yeah, so Marianne, Graham and Leslie all want to know, was it made 10 times harder by the fact that you only had one eye effectively when you were filming all of this? Yeah, it is fighting, fighting with one eye, seriously, fighting with one eye is a surprise if you haven't done it before because you, you, <laughs> you, you, you don't realise how much you, you have per, normally have peripheral vision. So if you're trying to do a sort of choreographed fight or semi-choreographed fight on horseback, uh, against four people, or even two people, or one person, it's, um, it's, it is difficult, it's quite dangerous actually. But that was the only time I was a bit, a bit worried. But uh, I remember, uh, what was the, uh, what was the director's name? Sorry, it's going to my head. Tom Clegg. The Tom Clegg, yeah. Oh, moment. No, we're not allowed to swear on this, are we? So no. no, yeah, no go no, for it, fine. fuck it, go for it. Go for it. I remember, you know, in time. Russian, if you say shut up, it's tichna, you know, tichna. He said, I remember him screaming out, tichna, tichna, and I the fuck na. He sounds like the absolute, like we hear these one-liners that he came out with and they sound absolutely brilliant. We've got to talk to the Wagon Master General, haven't we? Uh, there is a, first of all, though, can I ask you, um, because people want to know, uh, Tracy Lindsay, in your scenes with the Wagon Master General, how did you compose yourself to get through this? With great difficulty, I think. Mm. Um, Ian and I had had a previous experience. We un- unbelievably spent some time together doing a film in the Falkland Islands. <laughs> so we, uh, we, 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 knew, we knew each other quite well. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah, that just. takes me back as well. Jesus, another extraordinary thing. I remember waking up in the morning and saying, the day stretches ahead like a mudflat. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Nothing to do. Yes. We were in the Falkland Islands and there was nothing to do. It was so bleak, wasn't it? It was. We were inventive, though. We went on great missions, I remember. We did, we did. Over we did. hill, over dale. Um, but then, anyway, no, it was with great difficulty. We laughed a lot, didn't we? We did. We <laughs> laughed a lot. <laughs> As we did in Sharp, too. Can I just ask, is that an ungentlemanly act? Yes, yes. that's right. Oh, yeah. I love, sorry, I'm changing the I love that film. I can't buy it on right. DVD for like less than £60. I know, it I know. fantastic. It's I know. The one-liners is up there sharp. It's brilliant. You know, it was going to, it was going, it won the um, best single drama of of the year, and it was going to be released in the cinema. But unfortunately, somebody at the BBC had forgotten to get the music rights, and so that was it. It was, uh, you know, because they had "Strangers in the Night" and all sorts of songs in it, and, that, and somebody hadn't actually done the. Oh, nice. it's, it's just a brilliant as it's historic it's not my pc but as historical portrayals go it is a just a fantastic film a lot of fun to watch as a brit gets you very many, um, many stories with that we should do a podcast about non-gentleman that'd be fascinating uh, jason i couldn't remember whether we moved to yalta halfway through battle or before we started battle yeah before we started we did like one week of gold in in the studio polycure Yes. We we did the whole meeting Ian Shaw and then inside the cave. I'm not sure if you did any scenes there. No, you did because okay. there's a picture of you in makeup. There is okay. a picture of you in makeup, so you must have come in to do something. Right. But yeah, we did. We did. Um, you were battle was already. We were already in Yalta to start battle. I remember Yalta being much more um, 
luxurious by comparison with Simferopol, where we were staying. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it was the resort town. It was the Soviet Riviera. Yes, yes, yes. it was. Yeah, it, it was a, we, we were staying in a KGB san- sanatorium. It was where we used to go for their holidays, right? Yes, yes. In fact, quite a few of them were KGB sanatoriums, because I remember the first year. In we Simferopol it was as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Not the year you started, I think. Well, it well could have been, because the year you came, third year, that hotel was full of racketeers. Okay. Yeah, and um, famously, um, there was a Liverpudlian chap called uh, Philip Dowd who played a scalscally. He was chatting up one of the uh, mafia birds, and we were saying, look, watch out, watch out, don't ask the mafia. And so he brazenly, when he was a bit pissed, went up to one of the guys and said, hey, are you that mafia geezer? And <laughs> <laughs> that went down in uh, in in folklore, sharp folklore. Okay. But yeah, that was sanatoriums, KGB. Um, ours was called the Chernomori Sanatorium. That's the Black Sea Sanatorium. That's where we stayed. We love, I mean, I remember being on the balconies in Yalta, having a lovely evening with with Ollie and Dean, actually. And uh, I hear you've written a book, Jason. Yes, I, in fact, <laughs> it's based on the most wonderful time of my life. They were the best of times. They were the worst of times. In fact, this this episode, my life changed from the beginning to the end because um, A, Lyndon left, one of my top partners in crime. And then when we said goodbye to Liam and uh, to, to Lyndon and Phelan, Natasha and I went upstairs and she did a pregnancy test and we found out we were going to be parents. Gosh. So, I, it was the whole, it, my whole world changed from the beginning to the end of battle. For the better, of course. Of course, because Natasha is sitting there wielding a big stick, if you say anything <clears throat> else, behind uh, the wall of Linden that you're sitting in front of. Ian, um, yes. you are a comedic genius, I have to say, but did, was that the only approach you ever looked at? Um, that's uh, from Lawrence Gray. would like to know, did you always want to go in and play uh, Wagon Master General as that comedic character, or did you toy with any other approaches? Oh, no, no. I mean, there, there was only one way to play it. There was only one way to do it, which was that. Um, I mean, it was... Uh, and it was such a gift of a role, quite frankly, and those long speeches that he had um were just fantastic no no it was a it was a total joy to play it was a gift of a role uh, did you base it this is a cheeky question from suzanne prentice on anyone you'd met or anyone you knew <laughs> to be anonymous about it no 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 quite frankly no 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 it was not based on any character at all it was just no 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 it was it was um it was totally on the day um, she'd also like to know how much uh, we touched on this with you. How much? Um, how many outtakes were there spoiled by laughing? I think there were a few. I mean, I, I do remember. I, I did manage to make Sean laugh. I, I know that. And, and and there was the thing is, I did improvise a few of the little parts. I, I do remember that there were some that were written, and then I said, I think it would be good if at this point maybe I could just lift up a little bit and just go for something. And that just has Sean on the carpet at that point, I do believe. Yeah, it's in the tavern scene with Sharp, says Chris yeah. was he yeah. genuinely cracking up? Is that when you made he him? Was, he it? was, he was, he was. He was absolutely, um, uh, I mean, he, he, he couldn't... Um, you can control it, which was great. I mean, it was it was such a gift. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, where else are you going to put on screen something like that, which was, you know, it was a gift. Although I don't just want to talk to you about farting today, because that's... <laughs> 
We do, <laughs> we do a massive injustice. Um, we've had a Hornblower reunion with uh, Johan Griffith and Jamie Bamber as well. And we had a couple of questions. Uh, Gary Fowler says, firstly, can you please tell Mr. McNeese he's a fine actor and a national treasure? After working on both Sharp and Hornblower, what were the similarities and differences? Um, and did you join in with the nightly shenanigans after a day's shooting in the Crimea? And, and I think you've answered this a bit already because he says, did you make any new friends on set and have those friendships lasted? Yes, I mean, Johan Griffith, uh, um, the thing that I remember very well about Hornblower is, is that when, when um, I first joined Hornblower, it was right at the beginning, and Johan Griffith turned up, and he was, uh, he was a young boy. It was one of his first jobs anyway, and, and he was absolutely immaculate. I mean, he was, he was in bed by nine o'clock, there was no drinking. Um, he was completely online with his cues and all the rest of it. He was absolutely nervous as hell. And then I did, I did a few weeks and then I had a gap. I went away, um, for about two or three weeks and then came back again. And when I came back, Jörn Griffith had completely changed. <laughs> he was, he was drinking like hell. He was going to bed so late. He couldn't remember his lines the next day. It was a mess. Absolute mess. And that was extraordinary. That's what happened in the, in the short space of time that we worked together. I have seen him so many times since then. He's become a lifelong friend, which is great. But Matt Lenehan would ask, having appeared in both Hornblower and Sharp, did you prefer either of your characters? Surely the Wagon Master General wins it. The Wagon Master does win it, but, but Tapling was also a joy. I mean, where else can you be hoisted aboard a boat in uh, in what was the most fantastic piece of costume, which was a trousers, which were then hoisted, which you got into and then hoisted up by a big rope, and that's how I came on board the ship. I was hoisted. It was incredible. What entrance can you have better than that? So, I mean, I have to say, quite frankly, I've been hugely lucky in both performances to have such wonderful things to do. I do have to say as well that you have made a complete art form out of making completely undignified look cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether it be very, hoisting that's... or farting or, yeah, or whatever no. it's not like nobody i don't ever look at it and think oh dear there he is again being an ass it's not yes, it's, yeah, it's, no. it's that man is awesome and just no. owns all of this i love it um no, thank you i'm very touched by it thank you just on, can sorry. i just tell a quick story uh, of that, course, that yeah. i remember so well uh, uh, which was this is is it finally having been in yalta for sort of many weeks and eventually I got to go home. I was excited about going home. And so I was taken to the airport. I think at Simperoffel, was that the airport that we flew out of? Yeah. And I got there and, and the plane was meant to take off at 10 o'clock. And I was still in the airport at, at sort of one o'clock and, and sort of going apeshit and talking to the interpreter who was telling me, oh, no, no, sorry, sorry, fog, fog. There's fog here. No, we, we cannot go. There's just fog. I was looking outside. There was no fog. There was absolutely no fog. And eventually I had the interpreter up against the wall screaming at them saying, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> eventually he said to me, I'm sorry, you're sorry, cholera. And I said, what do you mean <laughs> cholera? He said, I'm sorry, there's cholera in, in simple rapport. And so they are refusing any planes to go to Istanbul. I said, fuck, what's we, a cholera? So <laughs> get me back to the fucking, get me back. <laughs> Straight away to the, you know, so I went back straight away to the, to the production office who then sort of got me on a flight um, going to Moscow in the end. And this was an airplane that I got on and I'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> the, 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 
the, the, the attendants didn't sit down on the, they just stood up and rested against the plane. There were chickens, there were all sorts. I've never been on a flight like it, quite frankly. It was, <laughs> these are the moments that I treasure so well. Where else can you have wonderful moments like that, including cholera? It's just, just fantastic. Thank you, Sharp. <laughs> Zach, with this one, the book wasn't written when the filming started, and there are the re- there's a reason, isn't there? Undoubtedly, that the program does not follow the course of the book. Tell us about yeah. it. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because they take a lot of these episodes and they stick it all into the Pyrenees, which is two years after the events that are the the, the book is based around because the book covers the kind of the, the lead up and the events of the Battle of Fuente Don Euro in 1811, whereas this cuts off before Fuente. And in a way, I think that was a really clever move, because partly because, of the, as Marcus said, the scale of the production for a battle of that size would have just been so hard to, to nail. But actually, as a self-contained unit, it just works beautifully with that whole kind of loop um, where you you have this story of, of Lou and, and, spoiler alert, the death but it, it works as a unit. And I mean, I was talking earlier about characters and how they, they come to life. And, and Ian's uh, Wagon Master General, Runciman, is just a perfect example of how Bernard Cornwell is able to take a, a hell of a lot of research and condense it into a single character. Because for all that we, we laugh at somebody like Runciman, there is some actual grounding in historical reality. I mean, the, the Americans have a, a phrase in the army today of certain individuals being what they call REMFs, which is rear echelon mother, insert expletive here. Um, Marcus will know if, if the British Army has the, the same kind of um, acronym. Yeah, we use, it's just, you just call them REMFs. It's not, uh, it's not a term of endearment. No, it's really not. But it's very true to reality because back in Santarem, during the peninsula, there was a, a military hospital and supply base at Santarem in Portugal. And it was full of people like Runciman, People, you know, that kind of that guy down the pub who knows everything about everything, has a view on every single thing and absolutely zero experience. And we've all come across people like this. And on the Internet every day, (laughs) which is full of them. (laughs) Um, But also it's what what works about this is that this is a story about honour. And Marcus got it in a nutshell that Lou is kind of the antithesis of Sharp. But they work on the same kind of principles. They're both dealing with their own versions of honour. And, you, you know, you're talking here about to what extent do the French atrocity, are they are the French atrocities to some extent justified because they're getting as good as they're um, giving, in effect, because the Spanish guerrillas were no angels. Yes, some of them were fighting for the liberation of their country, but equally others were just bandits. And there are stories of certain... Um, guerrilla leaders having things like uh, necklaces made out of human ears that they've cut off French soldiers. So this whole thing of kind of give as good as you get is really true to life. Um, But the other thing that I really love about this is the whole Afrancisado thing and and capturing that complexity of the the Spanish story in the fact that it wasn't a given that the French were going to be hated by everybody. And I think by cutting Fuente out of that, because for people who don't know, the, the book came out in 1995. Um, I think the TV show came out in April 1995. So, you know, as one is kind of going to production, the other is, is being finished. So there was no way of, of doing the two. 
Um, and as we've said, the, the other beautiful thing about this is Lyndon's death, which, I mean, I defy anybody to watch that scene and not have a tear in their eye. It's incredibly well done. We are going to get there. We are going to get there. Uh, we are delighted that Hugh Fraser, Lord Wellington, has joined us himself. Hello. Hello. Apologies for being late. Not uh, at all. Hello, Hugh. How nice to see Hello. you. Hello. 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 It's a prerogative of his grace, I think. You're living up to character. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just do. Jason, do you want me to do a screenshot? Yes. There we go. Okay, cool. Uh, Should we do Hugh's questions then, seeing as he's here, and then we can uh, go on to the death of Lyndon. Um, Perkins. Perkins. Well, yeah, not. (laughs) (laughs) You are still here. Uh, Oh, okay. So Hugh Fraser. I think you may have been asked this before, but uh, Daniel Owen and Marco Robertshaw are being cheeky because Hugh Ross is present. Who is your favourite intelligence officer? (laughs) Oh, um, without doubt. I mean, that's a question I can instantly answer by saying Hugh Ross. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely teed up. Um, Doesn't the same same question apply to Ali, though? Oh, me? Don't you, don't you have a family connection? Oh, right, Alex. What, what the okay. people think that Michael Byrne's my father? Yeah, yeah so this rumour is that Michael Byrne is your dad, and it's not true, is it? I think because Michael Byrne played my father in an episode of Touch of Frost, somehow the internet decided that Michael Byrne was my father, but he's not my father. So it's a whole... There's not yeah. a whole Darth Vader thing going on there, Ali, I am your father, and it's just the internet <laughs> being extremely silly. And now when I, on Facebook, someone said that, said, no, there's, she is not his daughter, I, I promise you. Yeah. A bunch of internet worries, yes she is, yes she is, yes she is, so I just left it until I knew I was going to speak to you. And I, I know Jason wanted to clear that up, I think it's even on your, on his Wikipedia page, somebody's Wikipedia page, at least, please go yeah. and edit. <laughs> I, but, but people... You know, edit your Wikipedia, don't they? I mean, yeah. you don't do your own Wikipedia page, so. Yeah, um, I, I do find yeah. that all very odd, but that's a hobby for some people, is just writing about other people on Wikipedia. That that strikes me as very odd. Natasha yeah. says you have the same beautiful piercing blue eyes. Which is quite rare. Which is quite oh. rare. <laughs> oh, that's very nice, thank you. But nonetheless does not indicate paternity. Hugh, did you have days on Patriot Games when you were on set with Sean? That question's come in from, I think, Martin Peake. Um, I don't think we did, no. No, we never coincided. Uh, we were really different parts of the story. Hmm. And so, uh, no, as far as I can remember, we never co- coincided, no. I had a much smaller part in uh, Patriot Games, but I had a scene with Sean, a court scene with Sean. Ah, I did not realise. As um, uh, the, 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 what was I doing in it? I was defending him, uh, prosecuting him. Yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was proving that Harrison Ford had been in the CIA or something. I can't remember what it was. But it's a nice scene. But Sean and I had done that together some time before. That was was that not in ninety three that came out, didn't it? Actually, two ninety two, I think, because I watched it the year I did Sharp. Ah, okay. 
yeah, I watched it. Um, uh, I think I may have watched it in between Paul McGann leaving and Sean joining. I may have gone to see what was going on. Linda, do you want to speak? Well, I was just saying Bino was, was yapping about it when we were in Portugal in Cascais after on during Sharp One. So it would have been out about then, I'd have thought. In fact, that was the one that the, the scar in his eye, that was when the, he was fighting with um, Harrison Ford and, and a fishing yeah, yeah. hook or a, yeah. a bill hook got caught, just caught Sean in the eye when they were fighting. He had to stop filming and letters and calls to agents had to be made. It was, you know, quite, quite hilarious considering Bino's half killed every single episode of Sharp, you know. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, okay, we also have, I'm just thinking some of these um, you've answered before, Hugh, so. Uh, it's my fault. I, I must apologize. I'm being told my internet connection is, is, is insecure or something. So if I go silent, it's not because I'm ignoring you. It's no, because... you're coming across loud and clear at the oh, moment. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, Leslie Wells says there is a world of difference between the Iron Duke and Captain Hastings. What aspects of himself <laughs> do you bring to both roles? <laughs> well, I mean, they, they couldn't be much more, much more disparate, really. Um, I don't know, uh, probably the same socks. <laughs> <laughs> probably not beyond that. And Daniel Clark says, your character is one of nobility, respect and power. Having a glimpse of that through your role, played magnificently, by the way, does it make you envious of the life that the Duke of Wellington had? And in that respect, is it a role you could have done countless more times just to get to be him? I would have been delighted to play it endlessly times, but endless times. But uh, as far as envying the actual man, his life, uh, no, quite honestly. I mean, you know, it's, it's being born in a straitjacket basically, uh, in that part, of that, of that part of the class system. Um, and then the military training is, is again, another kind of straitjacket. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, he had the, the talent, I suppose you could call it, to, um, to get to the top of his profession, which must have been gratifying to him. And, of course, uh, winning the battles he did. But I'm sure he wasn't unaware of the incredible hardship that those campaigns created, both for the enemy and and for his own army and and for the civilians, so I think it must have been an extremely, an extremely emotionally stressful life um, because he was a. I don't think he was an insensitive man. I think he was a sensitive man, um, but he was also a brilliant tactician, and so there must have been a great deal of satisfaction to be gained from actually winning the battles. But uh, overall, um, I think I'd rather not be 
born into that particular strain of society and uh, and going through that kind of way of life. Zach? Yeah, I'd strongly agree with that. As somebody who's looked at the other side of things, and I know Marcus will want to, to chip in here as well, but as an individual, Wellington, yes, he was acutely aware of the human toll that his campaigns took. He was always very careful to look after his men's lives. He didn't want to see them needlessly slaughtered, which was in contrast to Napoleon, who didn't really care so long as the outcome of a battle justified what he needed, but also the strain of what he was under. And the, sometimes you see that poured out into his letters, particularly his private ones, where he's absolutely raging about particular issues, whether it's his soldiers' behaviour or whether it's the constraints that he's faced with. And he spent so much time trying to push the boundaries of what he was able to do that I certainly wouldn't want on his job. And I think it took a very rare class of individual to be able to do what he did and do it so effectively. Yeah, we've discussed it so many times on History Hack, haven't we? When we talk about people suddenly deciding that X and X that Churchill did was disgusting or something that Gandhi said was horrible. And it's like these men that have all this power um, come with a huge responsibility as well. I'm not quite Star Wars there, I think. Yeah, that's Spider-Man, isn't it? I think it's one of the things they say that, like, leadership's very lonely at the top. And Wellington had that. He was commander of both the British and the kind of a, a de facto of the Portuguese and by this point he's pushing on commanding mostly Spanish army as well and it's incredibly lonely and uh, it must be very difficult he didn't have like a, a huge palace that was following him around like the Napoleon did he took two servants which to today sounds really lavish but actually having he only had a valet and a and a cook take going with him on campaign was really frugal um, though I always quite like the anecdote that they said Wellington always kept a good claret so he ate very uh, very meagerly. I was like the idea that he had a good red wine on the table. That was a man. He was given oh. such a lovely house. Um, but yeah, the, like you said, that it was affected him. He had a lovely house at the end of it. Absolutely, and they had a very good wine cellar too. Um, yeah, he he was really suffered, and Zach touched on it that he he we you know he definitely wept after some of the sieges, and he wept after Waterloo. So this was a man who I think there's a level of relatability with Wellington, which is it's really nice to see through. Hugh's betrayal that he's angry he's got he's got real wits Wellington in real life but uh, he is actually affected by the battle and I think that kind of comes out in company they're looking over the, the, the dead and dying over the breach as well and it's, it's meant to be moving you know this is this is war it's not meant to be overly glamorous it's it's not nice and uh, this is the moment I think that we see it's a personal level that the cast actually see somebody die from within their own ranks as well and how deeply moving that is times that by a couple of hundred thousand, you start to get the effects of the Peninsula War, yeah. I think you've just mentioned it. I think it is time, isn't it, to talk to Lyndon about his departure from the series. Um, Although there are some questions in here. Uh, Someone called Paul James Trussell would like to know, do you remember hyperspace? No. (laughs) (laughs) Next. You know, in the book, um, uh, the book of battle, there's a little line that says, Perkins knees, knows neither the day nor the year of his birth. So it fits, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Lyndon was born for the role. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So first of all, guys, uh, Perkins, it turned out after the show, is this right? It turned out after the show that Perkins does not die in the books. Yes, um, and it's mentioned in my book from Cromay with Claire. Yeah, have you? Yes, I have. I've written the book. It's out next July the seventh. Really? 
you can pre-order now through Unbound. Well, I never. But seriously, folks, um, yeah, so part of the next, the next episode on in this series was Sharp Sword, and we shot part of it in Portugal. We got to Portugal, Bernard was doing his annual visit. So in our hotel in, in Lisbon, I, or Cascais, wherever it was, I pulled Bernard aside and said, listen, gr- great episode. And Lyndon, by the way, says, thank you very much for killing him. And he says, I didn't kill him. That's not in the book. I was like, what? So it was a producer's idea, basically, to kill Lyndon. Basically, it was not in the book. Get rid of me. Jason's not happy because that's your bestie, isn't it? Gone. Yeah, my bestie gone. Yeah, I might have Natasha, of course, but if you know. You could marry Lyndon, I think. You've got to say yes first. Hang on. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I, you know, the tears rolling down my face in the uh, death scene with uh, Lyndon was absolutely very tay. I was gutted. I was watching it this morning and I felt myself welling up even now. It's crazy. 26 years later. There are questions about the death scene, but there are some more as well. Uh, let's see if Lyndon actually re- it is a running joke that Lyndon remembers pretty much nothing. But uh, Tracy Lindsay would like to know, being one of the younger members of the cast, did you find yourself pranked or taken under the wing by the other actors? Um, not really. I mean, everybody was, it was sort of all for one and one for all over there, really. Sort of, sort of age, as we mentioned before, age didn't really sort of come into it. So it was sort of, you sort of had to look after yourself. Um, and basically, I was probably pranking on more people than uh, they were pranking on me. So what you're saying is you're a complete pain in the arse on set? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can remember one particular prank. Um, the episode before was Sharp's Gold, and we had um, Rosie Linehan over from Ireland, a grand dame of the Irish theatre and film. And um, she was having a bad time with the water shortages, the 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 droughts the the horses the terrible drivers the fact that the crazed druggy kids on the, on her floor were partying their heads off and she wrote this letter to her agent to somebody I'm, i need more insurance i'm a terrible agent. and she'd left it by the phone and lyndon rolled up the next call and found this letter <laughs> and you know blaming us basically that we're going to kill her yeah. And Lyndon Xerox had letter and plastered it across the whole sanatorium. <laughs> so that was one prank. So Lyndon was the prankster, not not him being pranked. So that innocent little boy band face with the baggy shirts and the curtains was uh, hiding a, a nastier uh, yep. year there. Actually, if I may just interject, uh, uh, Lord Wellington was walking past as he was putting it on the board, and he yep. insisted that he took it down, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I remember handing you the letter, Hugh. Yes. <laughs> okay, I smell a rat with this one, Lyndon. Gary Fowler, do you know him? No. Okay. He's, he's my friend. Uh, okay. Did Lyndon know in advance that his character was going to be killed off, or did it come as a bolt from the blue? Also, just how much does Disco Davis recollect of his time as a chosen man? Has Daniel <laughs> Craig apologised and replaced your alarm clock yet? And do you still have Miranda's number in your very little black book, asking for a friend? <laughs> um, right, what was the first bit? <laughs> first bit is, did you, <laughs> did you know you were going to be killed? How did it come to you when you... You get, you, get, you get a phone call from from your agent when they uh, when uh, the next series came along, mm. and they were saying, "Well, okay, um, it's only it's only um, two episodes this year because uh, you've got you, you, you're being killed off." I was like, "Okay, okay, thanks very much." 
which was quite nice because it meant you actually got a storyline because we were struggling for storylines in the episodes building up to that one, to be totally honest. Um, so you sort of knew when they said, well, you obviously you're doing two, not three this year. And uh, your character's being killed off. Do you still want to do it? Um, and obviously, they, it basically, as Jason said previously, you say, if you say no, they find someone else anyway, or they just write you out. So, so yeah, you, you did know because it was all part of the negotiation, really. Does it feel like a rejection? Not really, no. It was, that's, as I said, it was actually quite nice to get a storyline. Yeah. Because, because we were, I mean, Jason might agree, but I did, I think the episodes after that, they were, I mean, Cooper just disappeared. Um, they, I, I think they were sort of like struggling to write for the chosen men, trying to find scenes for them to actually do it. And um, so it was actually quite nice to have an episode where I had a little bit more to do. Mm. Um, you get a death scene and you get a burial scene, and even Wellington mentions you in Waterloo. Yeah. In, in Johnny and I killed him. That's it. It was four pages long, my death scene. It was. It was a hefty three minutes actually, because you died. I, I, then Rourke dies, then Kylie dies, then Lou dies. It's like a hefty concentration of carnage at the end of the episode. But they're definitely moving Destiny, a beautiful, you know, uh, uh, Hagman singing, give me a tune, oh man, a killer, killer. Yeah, and that there are so many people saying, so we have Chris, Gail, Kenny, Timothy, Richard, Paul, all saying, um, asking you about actually filming the death scene. Was it difficult? How do you do it? And what do you remember about it? If anything, <laughs> well, I don't remember anything. Uh, so it's it, yeah, it was difficult. It was difficult. We we'd been together for three years. This was the third year, and a lot of us had been over there for four and a half months. And there was a proper sort of little family that had, had been there from right from day one, right from back from the Paul McGann days. So there was part of me that was actually quite. Um, not 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 worried, but maybe just sort of like a little bit upset about actually leaving the family. Actually, leave, you know that was you know because we I basically lived with the guys or the girls for four and a half months every for every year for three years. It's a um, it was a long time, and you're stuck in a hotel, you're stuck in a sanatorium, um, the Rossier, um, with a group, and it's it was uh, it was quite emotional, but um, it was also I was also wanted to go home. It was it, we got to that point. Um, in the actual filming on the third series where I'd had enough anyway, to be totally honest. Chris Etchnam asked, how easy is it act, is to act that someone's like final last moments? Um, he says an acquired art for sure, hence only the best in shot. Was that the first time you'd ever been killed off in anything? No, no. Ollie, will, uh, Me and Ollie worked together in 88, 89 at the Royal Shakespeare Company. So I was killed in that. Um, Edward, Prince of Wales, Henry VI, one, two, three, and Richard III. I think Ollie was Duke of Buckingham, Earl of Buckingham, and Jack Cade. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that was 1988, if you remember. <laughs> so, so uh, didn't you die in Pig Boy as well? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. They kill me off in everything I do, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> It's just another day. It wasn't just another day at the office, though, was it, Lyndon? Because I do remember you told us, I think when we did the Chosen Man one way back, when you said that you actually did go and have a little moment where you kicked the crap out of something on set after you'd finished filming it the last that, time. That was the white plastic chair in the, in, in the wonderful um, tents where we sort of got changed and everything. It was, um, you had a, a basically a white plastic chair. And uh, I found a, 
a wooden mallet that was obviously what you sort of bang the pegs in for the tent. So I just had a moment and uh, I just attacked this chair and turned it into sort of not a, a lot. Really. But what, what helped it, what helped it, the temperature had dropped and the chair and the, and the plastic was brittle. So when Bindi hit it with the mallet, it just disintegrated. I vid- I promised that I videoed it. I have it on one of my episodes. I promised to line up, but I don't have it. But I am screaming like a little child, laughter. <laughs> it's such a release, you know. It was such an emotional release um, that I-, I just was going mad and filming him do this, and it was quite hilarious. I will, I will pay for the chair if if uh, if anyone wants. Me. But Daniel Craig can pay for it, right? Daniel Craig owes me an alarm clock. That's a biggie. That's so a biggie. he can pay for the chair. Nine five ninety nine from Argos plus you know, interest that equals a white plastic chair surely you can afford it yeah okay uh, someone also asked as well uh, how did your family react to watching you I mean they obviously you're saying they'd seen you die plenty of times but how did your family react to watching you leave Sharp um, I think they, I think they were I, I, I think they were probably a bit more upset that I, I didn't have another another job the next year um, I think I think it was all you know it's all part of the did your friends think Richard Phillips wants to know because you were the youngest by quite a way did your friends think you were massively cool being in shot no <laughs> no they thought I was a, a, a big headed little uh, little what's it um, but that's not because you're in shot that was with Ollie Ollie at Stratford um, no not really they, I mean, I mean, the, to, when you were filming it, you, you, the, the, the friends that I had were, were, were the friends in the business, basically. Mm. And not as, because uh, all the, all the ones, that, all the friends I had at school, obviously, um, obviously weren't, weren't your friend anymore after the singing detective because you were whisked off and, and whisked off to London for big and better things. And kids are, kids are funny old people. And Sharp is popular, obviously, then, but, you know, it hasn't reached what it is now, a sort of, cultish legendary status so we were we were building the legend uh, you know in, at the third by, by the third year at that point really so it wasn't this behemoth that it is now sort of do people aiden ragnarsson wants to know do people still call you perkins in the street no because uh, uh i'll be honest with you i probably don't look like him because i haven't got my take that haircut anymore so so uh um I mean, it's nice when they do mm. um, and it has happened occasionally, but it's not uh, not a regular occurrence. Jason, how did it feel? Oh, you've already mentioned that the the tears were real. Um, how did the the break in the circle had already happened with the chosen men, hadn't it? But saying goodbye to Bindi. I mean, but me and Linda were a tighter circle than mm-hmm. the than the wider chosen men. Linda was always uh, in the room next to me. Um, we had the ritual of my alarm would go off. I would go and knock on his door, then I'd go back to sleep, and his alarm would go off and knock on my door, and then the first person to wake up again would go, and, and it worked. We always we managed to get our cars. So, you know, and of course, we got into lots of um, <clears throat> naughty things and stayed up very late with certain people who helmed the show, and, uh, yeah, we, 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 we were into lots of things together. Mr. Sokin, can I ask you a, a question, which is this, is, is, is it... When you did you get your alarm course and you did get up and you went to get your car, am I right in thinking that the drivers were breathalyzed in the morning before they drove off? They had they had to have had at least two volkers, otherwise they weren't allowed to drive. No, Ian, yeah, no, that's right. That I, I never actually saw it, but I did hear they were <laughs> breathalyzed because there there were some 
pretty hairy moments for some people. In fact, Ian Shaw mentioned it in the last in the last podcast. When and we... you write about that in your book, by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, have you got a book out, Ian? I have got a book out. It's it's called. Oh, no. It's called From Crimea with Love, the misadventure. When, when would your when would your book be coming out? The book will be coming out July the seventh, two thousand twenty-one. But it's, it's, it's now it's now in pre-order from out. Uh, sorry, from Unbound. <laughs> oh, and and what at what price is it at the moment? Um, you'll get a free copy probably, but I think it's around twenty pounds. Oh, that's not cheap, is it? My God, well, it's, I hope a, it's you... a it's a hardback. And it's got photographs. Oh, okay, cool. And it took 25 years to write, so don't fucking like it. (laughs) (laughs) But in fairness, Jason, he's he's about a week over 70 now, so the government's decided he's no longer allowed to work for a living. That has to change. We're going to spearhead that campaign on Facebook, Alex. We absolutely are, because it's nonsense, and it's it's quite frankly offensive. Uh, Mr. Fraser, we were talking before you arrived about our predicament about our age that we're now persona non grata as regard insurance companies. Is that so? I, is that a fact? I've heard rumors. It is a fact, yes. I, I mean, I've already lost a job because they said, unfortunately, we can't employ you because the government were insuring the productions in February because they want everybody to get back to work and they're encouraging film companies to work. So they're doing the insurance of saying 70 is the cutoff. You can't insure after 70. Well, it's outrageous. Absolutely it is outrageous, ridiculous. Yeah. Now, I've heard of a couple of cases of that. It's stupid, ridiculous. Well, Phil Jackson, I think it happened with him. Yeah. I think you told me about his story. I think yeah. that he got, that was a terrible story where, I, where he actually was doing a role and then they went to COVID and then they contacted him and said, we're, we're recasting that role because we can't insure you now. I think that's what happened with him. Yeah. Yeah? That's right. That's right. It's, it's appalling. It is. I just don't, I can't comprehend it. I can't. I'm just like, it really is. It's like nanny state to the extreme, isn't it? I mean, I'm in better shape now than I was when I was 30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And you look, oh, you look not difficult, of course. But I mean, <laughs> uh, <better> now that <laughs> you've been in those years, quite frankly, but that's to do with the drink. <laughs> Surely with the vaccines, that's going to change. Surely. I mean, they that can't... will help you a lot if you get the vaccines. And also. <laughs> 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 we we've done a little bit of sadness in talking about uh Lyndon getting killed off but of course people do tune into these because they love to hear um the joy that you all had filming this and all of the shenanigans that went on uh behind the scenes so I guess should we go around the room and find out what everyone's favorite memory is on Sharp definitely or uh, just not necessary because some of you have been on before but we'll uh we'll talk about some of the things you remember about Sharp's battle so Hugh Ross uh, it must be to do with the Emmett Neeson thing about farting and bodily functions. Um, for some, for some, for some reason, I remember very distinctly on a night shoot at the on the ramparts with Sean, and Sean and I had not had a lot in common because I didn't know anything much about Sheffield United, and 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 we hadn't had a lot of chat. And we were just standing there waiting to do the scene. He turned to me and he said, "You?" I said, "Yes, Sean." He said, "I'm sorry." He said. I've got to go to the toilet. And he went flying off the set to the loo. So presumably some of that wonderful grub had got him. There's a very vivid memory of my, my kind of limited experience of Sean. Anyway. Sure, there wasn't Alan Bennett. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've got to go to the toilet. Yeah. Like Alan 
Uh, oh, Wallace, Wallace and Gromit. Yes. Sorry, sorry. You remember all sorts of things, actually. And I, I said in, in, in the gold thing about how uh, Hugh Fraser was my nurse when I was ill and was Florence Nightingale to me. How wonderful. Right, yeah. I've still got the costume. Have you? <laughs> yes, you still go out in it sometimes, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When were you were allowed to go out? Yeah. Oliver, your favourite memory on Sharp? Right. Um, it was all linked for me with, with being in, uh, in in Russia and the Crimea at, at that time, which I found very, very interesting. And uh, we were next to the Lovyada Palace, which is where the... Uh, the, what, the, what, the, the big conference, the conference, the Yalta conference was held, and all that, that. I found all that very interesting, as well as the shooting of Sharp. But I remember one day um, somebody mentioned these tents where we were all the, the, the white tents. I remember on on location. There were no trailers except Sean had a trailer. That's my memory. I may be wrong. And I talked to the man who had driven this trailer through Europe. He'd started in Vienna. Sean had said he wanted a trailer or something. And, um, and this man's story, which unfortunately I can't remember the details of, was something like something out of the Middle Ages at this particular time when the whole Eastern Bloc had fallen down. Was oh, yeah, was that Gary? Gary Fiddler. Gary Fiddler. Gary. Was that his name? Gary. He was the Winnie, the Winnie driver. <laughs> Gary oh. Fiddler, yeah. Gary Fiddler, okay. So, so, so he was the one who had driven it. Uh, on order to, from Vienna, I think he started in Vienna and drove it down through, you know, through Romania, through Bulgaria, through all the, all the way through, through to. And because he said I didn't get any sleep at all because every time I stopped, somebody tried to hijack the the trailer or use yeah. it. As, so, so at night, he said I had to sleep with the lights on, with a gun next to me, and all that. And it was incredible. And at the time, I thought that would be a great story to tell. But somebody tried. Right. There were no trailers in the Crimea. There were no caravans. Nobody had that. And uh, so I remember that very clearly. That was the first, it was the first year Sean actually had had a trailer. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. for the Sharp 1 and 2, he didn't. Obviously, we knew he'd gone Billy Big Time when the trailer arrived. When the trailer arrived, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they looked, they looked like a caravan. Billy Big Time, I love that. Billy Big Time, that's great. The thing, the thing is, it was so clapped out. It wasn't new. It was an old shitty Winnebago. And yes, Gary was cool. constantly tinkering with, like, chewing gum and bits of condom to make fan belts and stuff. It was hilarious. My other big memory of the thing was, as you say, you know, the, the, the testing of the drivers before they drove, you know, giving them, um, what's it called, you know, alcohol tests. And uh, when we got up to this location... Up in the where was it? In the mountains where we were shooting, where the Redstone Pass. Yes, and then uh, there was a group of um, young Russian soldiers who were kind of guarding the location at night or stayed there, and um, they were some of the most. This I've never seen such a kind of depressed-looking group as these soldiers who were there guarding. Do you remember them? Yes. It was. It was. I, I couldn't really look on this. They were so. They looked like they'd been sort of dragooned into this job. Weren't they paid one dollar a day or something? Yes, like that's that? right. I think that's yeah. right. Ian. Yeah, it's a dollar a day, and they had to. And, and 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 I remember turning up, and there were no soldiers for this one scene because. And someone said, "Where are they? Well, they're going off doing what soldiers normally do, which is fighting somewhere." So and then they came back right. the next day. Well, Extraordinary. They looked. They looked. Look, yeah, I remember that. The faces were kind of swollen with unhappiness and sort of misery, and I saw one of them drinking out of a out of a cow trough one day 
And they used them as extras. And they fell asleep on the set because they were so exhausted. Yeah. Standing in line just for... I remember that very clearly. Um, but, uh, yeah, lots of other memories, but uh, that's uh, what I remember. Ali? Um, I do remember that about the extras and that they were paid a dollar a day and were so exhausted. Mm. Um, and, um, and actually there was a lot of just depression around, it seemed, from everyone almost not employed by the film set or... So, you know, yeah, amongst the fun, I think we were very aware of how sort of bleak life was for people there. And in fact, the drought, yeah. there'd been a forest fire and a drought, but it was so bleak, it was almost a sort of set of a Lorca play, just how barren everything was. And the food was, you know, quite a challenge. I remember there was bacon trucked out so that um, the crew didn't go on strike. And I think at one point the bacon ran out and the producers were already worried. That oh, there no was, I work. remember. I mean, I you think we went on strike at one point about the bacon, isn't the that bacon. right, Jason? Yes, yes, we isn't went on strike bacon, in the first year. Bacon yeah. strike? It was called the Dimaji Bacon Riot. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, it's all mentioned in my book. Is it? Is it? <laughs> You've written a book? Yes, it's called <laughs> From Crimea with Love. Oh, oh amazing. That's fantastic. Can't wait to buy it. Since you're coming in fact, out. When's in, fact, yeah. in fact, Hugh has been very nice and he's actually read it. Yeah, I have. It's a very, very good read, I have to say. Excellent book. Yeah. Seriously, though, I know I'm joking about it. It really is a cracker. There's a rumour that it's going to cost £20. Is that right? <laughs> That's a bargain because, you know, everything's going up. You know, it, it might be 25 in a minute after these podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Although you are going to need that over 70 rate for all the people that are no use to society anymore. <laughs> so we're going to smash that together, Alex. We're a leader we campaign. Are. We're going to destroy that. Uh, Ian. Yeah. Okay, so one of my favourite moments was, was uh, meeting up with Dara O'Malley after filming uh, and after we'd had our, our, our meal, our, our frugal meal, back at the hotel, the sanatorium. We then went into town to the casino, mm-hmm. this very small little casino. Uh, and, and I remember and I was playing blackjack at the table and I can remember this uh, cockroach appearing at the table. Uh, uh, and it, I, I swear to God, it winked at me at one point and said, I hope you're doing okay. But I was thinking to myself, cockroaches in the casino, that's a first. And then as we left late on at night, we walked out outside and I said, well, how the hell are we going to get back? And he said, well, there are no taxes. And I said, well, how the hell are we going to go back? And said, Dara said, don't worry, hang on. And at that point, a policeman drove by and he flagged him down. And we got in the car with the policeman that Dara knew. And uh, mm-hmm. in front was a woman of the night with the policeman, who I believe was uh, possibly a prostitute at the time. And that was a real learning curve for me to be driven back to the sanatorium at night in a police car w- with uh, with Dara. That was a real treat. That's in my book too. Are, are you seeing the picture of Dara here? Love yeah. the picture of Dara O'Malley. Yeah, so it's that's after, after the casino with, uh, with Ian. He had to sell everything and, and raise money. <laughs> <laughs> so help, help me! I was I was once Darrow Malley. Perfume puns. <laughs> yes, yes, excellent. Lyndon, what's all this about the journey home? Well, what the journey home after Perkins died? Yeah. With Phelan. Yeah. 
And we went from Simferopol Airport to Moscow in a plane that was the complete opposite to what Ian had described earlier. It was six brown leather sofas and it was extremely luxurious and it was absolutely lovely. We arrived at Moscow Airport. They put the steps down and the, the, the Moscow police, whatever, the guys with the big hats, literally walked up the steps and asked us for our papers and our passports and so on, which I duly had everything because I was a big girly swap. However, Phelan had a piece of paper missing. I think it was, he had his passport, it could have been his visa, but he had some piece of documentation that was left with Cindy in the office. And they they would not, they put their hands out, they would not allow him to step off the plane onto the tarmac at the airport. So the two of us became one. I went off to to the uh, to to the airport and had to pay about three hundred and ninety five dollars for excess baggage because it was only now me carrying the camera they'd asked me to take home plus my two months worth of luggage. And Alan got on the plane and I have never seen him since. And I presume the plane went back to Simferopol and he went back to the hotel and came home, or might even still be there. Yeah, he came back that night and he stayed. He had to wait a week because of the cholera situation and some other bit. And um, he had a job in Prague, I don't know, maybe five or, or a week later, and he had to miss it just because they wouldn't fly him out of Kiev. You could fly out of Kiev. It just was much more expensive. You know, it just... I was on the airport when we arrived, when the, when the plane arrived. Um, we, had a, we had an interpreter with us, but just one, just one interpreter is a little bit different than a whole big film crew behind you. And it was it was it was it was night time, so it was dark, and they were, as I said, the guys with the guns and the big hats. And it wasn't a pleasurable experience. It was quite frightening, you know. And all of the all of the Phelan was just literally they were like yet yet yet. And so yes for me, no for him. He went off back on the plane, literally not not even allowed off the step. And I just got it was yeah very weird. But there we go, interesting. About to be stranded into Russia, probably taken into slavery to be part of some boy band forevermore. Mm. I, mean, I, was thinking, I was hoping Phelan would be on the call today because I, I literally have not seen him since we turned, which I went down the steps onto the airport and he went back into the plane. And I've never, you know, don't know where he is. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he might still be there. Hugh Fraser, your favourite memory of Sharp's Battle? Uh, yes, Sharp's Battle. I, to be honest, I can't remember which film it was, but my favourite memory of Sharp is uh, one day we were filming in the Ukraine. We were up a hill and uh, we were just wrapping and we looked down and the Russian soldiers, the aforementioned Russian soldiers, were playing this kind of contest down there. They, they, were, they, they formed a kind of what looked like an elongated rugby scrum, you know, each clamped onto the, to the one in front. And the game was for one of them to run up and vault along the line of these, of these bodies and the furthest they could get, the better. And then they went and joined on the front of it. And we were watching this and they, they were amazing. They were really, really, you know, rocking up a storm. And suddenly Jason Sulky streaked past us, barreled his way down the hill, took up a stance about 100 yards away from the end of the line, ran up and launched himself into the air and got right to the far end, much, much further than any of the other soldiers had managed. And he got a massive round of applause. And it was a great moment. 
Wow, that I'd done a Linden moment. I don't remember that at all. That's not in my book. Editors, editors. My God. Yeah, <laughs> I had no recollection of that at all. Really? Really, seriously. That's terrible, huh? No, I mean, but, you know, I like you know, it. I like it. A round of applause for it. <laughs> well, it happens so often, Hugh, uh, you know. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Is that in your book? No. <laughs> Should be. Yeah, the, copy, the copy edit's been handed to me, and I'm, on the 7th of December, I've got to hand it back, so maybe I can change it. Yeah. Well, we'll just volume two, it. Jason, the second one. Yeah. <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> part two, part two for sure. Um, brilliant, brilliant memory, Hugh. Thank you. Brilliant. Would it be possible, Jason, to... Is it too late to put this in your book at all, or, or not? <laughs> lift it a little higher. Lift yeah. a little higher, Ian. Say again. Is Stop it possible? Speak. Is it too late to put this in your book, this photograph, or, or oh, not? What a lovely no, picture. No, in fact, I'll do a screenshot. It's such good quality. I'll do a screenshot. It'll go straight in. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some lovely pictures of you, Ian. Don't worry, man. Ah, oh, sweet man. I'll, I'll send them to you. Thank you. Let me chip in with a couple of questions here. Because as a kind of history nerd who kind of embraced Sharp through the, the books and the series, there are lots of things that I kind of end up wondering. Um, firstly, with Lyndon's final scene, were they decent enough in the scheduling to leave that to the end of, to, to leave it to Lyndon's last day so that you were kind of in that situation of no acting required? Or did you just kind of have to source it from something? Because it's so real. I think, I, th I think, Jace, it was in order, wasn't it? I think they yeah. did... I think that was one of the times where they actually formed the episode literally start to middle end in order. Um, we, actually, we filmed the funeral scene first. That was on one of the first days of battle. We filmed you being buried. Oh, and us walking, yes, well, of course, walking up the hill away, up the, uh, over the hills and far away. But yeah, your death scene was filmed two or three days before you left. Yeah. And then I had a party. Oh, yes. That's why Phelan lost, uh, lost his uh, visa, because the party we had that night was of such intensity. It was like an impossible quality. quake party. I think quality, not intensity, quality. It was quality, intensity, amounts. It was everything. It was, it was well, one hell of a party. Even Ian McNeese used to approve of my DJing. <laughs> Everyone approved of that. In fact, Sean was so wasted, he couldn't even make it down to the your bus to say goodbye to you. Oh, God, wasn't he wasted virtually every night? Come on, man. <laughs> It is shelter, Ian. We all were. It's how you survived on Sharp. It was, it was. I mean, it was the whole point of being there. I remember that it was the one luxury we had at night, which was being able to drink, for goodness sake. <laughs> and and in all of the books and all of the, the, the soldiers are always hungover. Chosen men, for sure, are always hungover. So we just went for it, you know? Yeah, exactly. True to life. Perhaps that's part of why it kind of feels so realistic when you're watching it, because it's they, totally. they were permanently pissed the other thing that comes across really beautifully is the battle scenes i don't know how marcus feels about this but there's there's a scene really early in battle when you're fighting loops soldiers for the first time and it's a really smoky shot you've got lots of very rapid cuts the, the ambush shows scene the, is that yeah that's the one and you get the chance to fire off i think it's one volley and then you're busy kind of smacking each other over the head with with rifles and I think Jason kind of casually kicks some Frenchman in the balls and it, it's a great scene not just because Jason kicking French people in the balls we should kind of add but were you conscious when you were filming that that they were doing something different because it's quite obviously kind of different from some of the other scenes that we saw where you're you're fighting in that one 
I would definitely say because um, that was very detailed um, and it was a daytime. I think you're talking about the scene where we, we catch the guys who have taken um, Miranda into the barn and we save Miranda. One, yeah. Yeah, and then we shoot. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's actually Lyndon that kicks the person in the balls. It's a great little scene. Lyndon takes off a cameraman and then turns to see another guy trying to shoot him and then whacks him right between the legs and takes out two guys. Beautiful moment. But um, I'm trying to think, yeah, Badahoff was a lot of action, but that was at night and it was, you know, thousands of people. So, yeah, this did feel a bit different, I must say. And uh, the chosen unit was, was, you know, not smaller, but it was more sort of developed. But yeah, it did feel good. I really like shooting those scenes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with the weapons training, were you guys, because you've got, it's very weapons heavy, this one, with training up the, the um, Rail Campagna Ilandetha. And you've got Ali there, who's at one moment she's shooting somebody with a pistol, another moment she's kind of broken out a musket and she shoots somebody with that. Mm-hmm. Were you guys given much in the way of weapons training for those specific scenes? Or was it just kind of, in a in a block right at the start, this is how you handle a gun, and and then off you go. Yeah, Ali, Ali, what about you? Because we know the chosen men had like a little course, but you're shooting um, and then loading, and then amongst them. Yes, I know. I was taught to. It was so much fun, and I felt very lucky because it was like a sort of you know live history lesson. What was the name of the historian who was there? And he also Richard Moore. Oh, Richard Moore, who was brilliant. It was brilliant. So you could, you know, almost do a sort of history degree alongside the filming. And every day on the call sheet, I, well, I, I seem to recollect that we had a, a fact, didn't we? He sort of put historical in a historical fact, yeah. fact yeah. on fact, the um, call sheet, yeah. There was, which was... The, there was also Will Whitlam. He was our armourer. He was also very good at the history and stuff. So we had Will, but Richard Moore was the military advisor. Will came in later, didn't he? So yeah, Will, Will came in later. OK. And I do, I do remember sort of being taught how to hold the musket, which is fun, because often, you know, as the girl, you don't get to do those scenes. So, no, it was really... And was it a night? I think it was a night. It was, yeah. Um, there's, a, yeah. there's a scene in the daytime when you're practising and, and short Sean. But that's sharp. right. But then yeah, the yeah. great scene is the night attack. It yeah. feels a bit like the uh, Magnificent Seven. Everyone's, like, <laughs> in the village ready for the bad yeah. guys coming in and they've got the well and it's all everyone's coming together. It's a nice... Um, I can hear the yeah. Magnificent Seven soundtrack in my head. I think it was a really, really good writing too. You know, just the fact that actually everyone's got to pitch in. And I think it sort of was very, yeah, it was a really good, it felt sort of very real and different. And yeah, it was really good fun. Russell Lewis wrote that one. And what about Oliver's death scene? You get you get a good sword fight with Sean Bean, who's quite famously um, done sword um, stage training. And then you get a magnificent death. Was that all part of it or you got a lot of experience and you're able to like kind of flesh it out and do a lot more i was wondering i i think i think that fight was very heavily choreographed if i remember i don't remember i don't remember who did who choreographed it who would have been the person who would have the fight arranger we had we had a um we had an english stunt coordinator roy street oh it was roy it was roy street yeah but but roy was mainly a horseman yeah, but I worked with Roy before. It was was Roy Street. He did it. Yeah, but but we also I'm not sure he was on battle, but for sure he was on sword. We had this guy called Uldis, and he was a ex Soviet fencing Olympic coach or had won a bronze medal, or whatever. And he was the one teaching Sean. He had been in the the year before, so I imagine he had been been around uh, in that episode. But I can't remember him on on set there. But was he was Roy. on set in the next. It, it was Roy. I remember Roy. Roy Street. Yeah, Roy, yeah. yeah. We worked on it for a bit. Yeah. 
What is amazing, when, when we started Sharp, the original Sharp's Rifles with Jim Goddard, there was absolutely no stunt coordinator on the production whatsoever. Ah, I mean, yeah. Pardon? No English stunt coordinator. Yeah, yeah we had um, um, Sasha Vilatov, who spoke no English whatsoever, but was very enthusiastic in showing us everything. And we had Slava Berlachko, who's the horseman. But but they were amazing. And the and the um, the stuntmen, which were called cascadors, I don't think they were drunk on set. I don't think they were, but they were definitely committed and they put their body through hell every single time. And they were amazing. They were very scary. I remember that. That was very scary to have to come up against them. Yes. Like out of hours, Natasha says. Because it is, it's a great sword fight and a death scene. And I was going to say, oh, because I've, I've got the sword that killed you. I know Jason knows that I, I bought that on an auction house uh, recently. And it actually, it wasn't. I was watching it last night and you get stabbed with Ali looking through the bars over Lord Kylie's body. It's a great scene. And um, yeah, we've done it in a few other podcasts. Have people, I, I, I bought something because I'm a, I'm a fan and a, historian so I wanted a, I wanted a sword and what's better than sharp sword um, but we've done it a few people who've pilfered things off set but we've got some new faces in I wonder if anyone took any mementos home with them or, or if they didn't wish they wish they had anything you wish you had on your wall at home which uh, you had to leave behind I think Hugh you might have taken that bottle of whiskey that we used to drink <laughs> you know I still have that yeah <laughs> I still have that in the cupboard somewhere yeah. Yes. It's aging. I also, I also have, and I mentioned this last time, and I must, I must look it out for the next time for the sword episode. Is the, is the Monroe um, flagon that I had on my desk? Don't know if you even remember the prop. It is a really good prop. I'll bring it next time. <clears throat> I will say though, you, you, none of you guys got Jardia, right? Jardia Lambia, the the amoebic dysentery type thing. No, none of you guys got that. that yeah. So, so we didn't get cholera, but we didn't get Jardia. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but but also that year there was a massive flu bug that swept through the cast and crew. I don't know if you remember that. And one day there was no actors apart from Sean Darrow, myself, and Lyndon. Lyndon, remember that? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was one day the whole the whole unit was laid waste, and with only four people who you know we had survived. There was, there was something, and wasn't Gaino flown out to Simferos? Yes. yes, yes. The cholera thing was pretty heavy and serious. Because it was, um, it was. That's where the water disappeared. Because when, because when they paid, when they paid the guys to turn the water back on, they couldn't turn it back on because of the cholera that was going on. Okay. So we were having, we were, we were, we were literally. I was showering in bottles of Evian. Evian. Well, we were given bottles of water outside our room. to wash, to shower into wash yeah. the air. That was flown in from Germany. The Evian, I remember. They, yeah. Yeah, it was an avian. It was it was some. Avian, you. I mean, who'd have thought it? Um, yeah. You know, uh, there's a funny, uh, funny thing about that. I'm not sure it's in the book, <laughs> but um, someone, Ooh. someone saw the delivery of the pallets of water and then looked, and and they were out of date. <laughs> That's what production had bought for us: out of date water. Oh, hey. we were only showering in it, Jason, not drinking. Yeah. No, this was the stuff we were drinking in. This was the stuff we're drinking. But you know the. Um, I didn't drink the, any water on stuff. <laughs> true, true. Well, I, remember, the, I remember sitting in the sanatorium where we were staying, looking down at the town, which was way down below in the bay, and um, being aware that we were kind of like sort of potentates sitting up there without cholera, 
and the whole of Yalta was suffering with cholera. We had, because our water had been turned back on, we had water from, you know, from Germany or wherever. It, or it's, there was something that happened that made it. We were kind of out of, the, out of danger for a little bit. But uh, walking around with uh, buckets down in Yalta was horrible. Yeah. I got this. Um, um, this, is a, uh, this is a medal, right, that, uh, that, that I received from uh, the producer Chris Burt. And it says, the order of the Istanbul traveler, Niet flight. Breakfast, Niet breakfast. Lunch, Niet breakfast, lunch comrade. Supper, da if you're lucky. I hereby award this medal to Ian McNeese for distinguished service against all odds during departing from Shah's battle in Yalta in the Crimea, October 1994. Signed the 6th day of October 1994. Chris Burt, the producer. Oh, uh, oh and you framed it. No, I was going to say nobody else got one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Although we did get one on the first year, um, they gave us a little diploma. But not that's great, Ian. Brilliant. It's great. Yep, lovely. It's it's funny. I still have the summons I was given uh, for the Paul McGann court case. I wish I could find it. I'll hold it up next time. So that's what I've kept. A summons telling me to appear in court to, alongside uh, Paul McGann against <laughs> producers. <laughs> Which ended up me being killed and kicked out of the last uh, series. There you go. It's all in my book. Uh, <laughs> Ian, we were have you just written saying a book, Jason? My God, have you written a book? That's fantastic. Thank you. Ian, we were just saying if anyone else had taken anything from set, apart from your uh, your medal, did you uh, take anything in your hand luggage back? Or from Hobbo, I suppose. Yeah, just about a collar when I got home. That was the only thing I <laughs> <laughs> I think Lyndon did rather well this time. She remembered so much. Yeah. I've been, I've been rehearsing and reading up on stuff. <laughs> um, there was a question, Lyndon, on what you're up to now. Um, but I don't know. You're not acting, are you? It's up to you if you want to answer that one. Um, no, I'm just sat around Sunday. <laughs> oh, in general, in general. Yeah, um, it was in yeah, general. You know, uh, I, I, do you know something? I'm going to drop a bombshell. Oh, hang on. Let me ask you properly then. Lyndon, um, everyone would like to know what you're up to now, mate. I've got a book coming out next year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's my, uh, it's, yes, my biography is coming out next year and uh, being written by someone else. And, well, not obviously me because I can't write. Um, So hopefully it will give Jason a run for his money. What's the title of it called? We haven't got one yet. From Simply Awful with Love. No, no, Sharp's got a little bit in it. It's a little bit in it, but um, there's a couple of titles we're working on, Ian. I'll, 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 I'll let you know. For anyone playing the drinking game, that is a different book out next year, so you need to down <laughs> the rest of your pints. Well, you know. well done, Lyndon. Thank you. Thank you for keeping a secret. Woohoo! <laughs> and of course, we must, you must ask Ali what she's doing now. Yeah, Ali, so what's next after? So you've done the last one with Shakespeare. What's next? Um, well, coming out in September 21 is A Poet for Every Day of the Year. Uh-huh. So there'll be a poet that sits on each page and a bit of biography about them, um, sort of from around the world. And But I did find a poem because Jason said, was there a poem um, that was that made these suit uh, what we were talking about today? Mm-hmm. And um, so lots of poets wrote 
um, of course, about the Napoleonic Wars. Byron, famously, Robert Southey, who was the poet laureate. And um, this is a poem that um, that might fit. Um, it was it's a it was a really famous poem that's probably not that well known now called The Burial of Sir John Moore oh, yeah. by Charles Wolfe. And Byron really championed it. Um, it's probably the only famous poem that he wrote. And it was about um, Sir John Moore, who was a distinguished general who was in charge of the British forces. And he died in the Battle of Corona. Do you pronounce it, historian? Corona. 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 And um, so in 1806, and... Um, and Wolf's words sort of served to commemorate more as a hero. So I could leave it for people to look up or I could read it. Or oh, someone read, could it, read, read it, read it, read it, read it. Read it, read it, okay. Okay. Um, the Burial of Sir John Moore by Charles Wolfe. Not a drum was heard, not a funeral note, as his course to the rampart we hurried. Not a soldier discharged his farewell shot o'er the grave where our hero we buried. We buried him darkly at dead of night, the sods with our bayonets turning, by the struggling moonbeam's misty light and the lantern dimly burning. No useless coffin enclosed his breast, nor in sheet, nor in shroud we wound him. But he lay like a warrior taking his rest, with his martial cloak around him. Few and short were the prayers we said, and we spoke not a word of sorrow, but we steadfastly gazed on the face that was dead, and we bitterly thought of the morrow. We thought, as he hollowed his narrow bed and smoothed down his lonely pillow, that the foe and the stranger would tread o'er his head, and we, far away on the billow. Lightly they'll talk of the spirit that's gone, and o'er his cold ashes upbraid him, but little he'll wreck if they let him sleep on, in the grave where a Briton has laid him. But half of our heavy task was done when the clock struck the hour for retiring and we heard the distant and random gun that the foe was sullenly firing. Slowly and sadly we laid him down from the field of his fame, fresh and gory. We carved not a line and we raised not a stone but left him alone with his glory. Oh, wow, wonderful. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. What a, great. What it's a perfect great. place for us to finish, guys. Thank you so much for coming on to relive some of your memories from filming Shark's Battle with us. As ever, it's been a complete blast and a joy to have you. Thank you, everyone. And anyone, you. Uh, you guys, I'll send you a copy of um, the, the word copy of my book so you can have a look at it. Thank you. Nathan, so stop Thank giving you. it away. <laughs> they're great actors. They're, they're in Only the book. Only for the over seventy actors. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Sorry, this is my PR hat on. Going. What are you doing? <laughs> Thanks, guys. And I'll be in touch. Hugh, you, you, Hughes, will be in touch, obviously. And all the rest of the guys, I'll send you a little, um, a little, you know, a bit of bob and a few pictures and stuff. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Thank bye. You. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Bye. Nice to see you all. Bye, Sally. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.